Portia of Our Chambers, by John Mortimer, adapted by Richard Stoneman, starring Benedict Cumberbatch as Horace Rumpel. The truth was that I viewed my new pupil as one of the most beautiful note-takers with whom I'd ever had the pleasure of working. Her appearance in wig, gown, stiff collar, white bands, and horn-trimmed spectacles was, to my mind, one of flagrant sexuality. Yeah, by the way. What do you think of that new girl, uh, Phyllida Thingamay? Phyllida Trant. In Belmont is a lady richly left, and she is fair, and fairer than that word, of wondrous virtues. As you like it? The Merchant of Venice. Again? I think you're obsessed with Portia. I think, perhaps, he was right. Mr. Rumpole, good evening. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I I had no idea you'd still be here. Stop working now. Go home. Go to bed. What will you do? By yourself? I will enjoy being by myself. It's none of my business, I'm sure. But is there some reason you're not at home with your wife? It is indeed none of your business. <clears throat> now, here, let me uh, help you on with your coat. Oh, you're awfully kind. There, just pull up the collar. Thank you. Are you quite sure you meant to do that? Do you wish I hadn't? I only came here to get some sleep on, on, on the sofa. You do look very tired. Perhaps you should sit. Perhaps I should. Will you join me? I feel guilty. You've done nothing wrong. Not yet. I'm going home now. Would you like to share a cab, Miss Trent? I think perhaps Mr. Rumpole might still need no. some... No, off you pop. But I thought you needed some help. I'll be fine, thank you. Are you going north, Bernichant? Uh, south, actually, to Balham. Best way to approach Islington. By Balham. Come, we'll leave Rumpole to burn the midnight oil all by himself. If you're sure. Good night, Miss Trant. Good night, Mr. Rumpole. As Erskine Brown ushered Miss Trant down the stairs, I turned my sofa into a bed for the night. Can I tell you about the new recording of Tanboys that I just purchased? Well, in Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Herbert von Carrier. That sounds intriguing. Yeah. Does it? For a moment I thought about telephoning she who must be obeyed to inform her of my whereabouts. I wonder if... No, perhaps not. But then I convinced myself she had no interest in my well-being or location. And, of more concern to me at that moment, was the relationship, both professional and personal, which I had with the beautiful young Phyllida Trent, the Portia of our chambers. Oh, 
God. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Stupid. There was no doubt I'd made a mistake, both professional and personal, by sharing my sofa with her. Did I regret the assignation? I'm not sure. Did I resent Erskine Brown's unsubtle pursuit of my pupil? Absolutely. As I settled down under my old tartan blanket and adjusted the stained corduroy cushions, my head was spinning with contradictory emotions and burgundy. I told you not to hold my hand in public. Oh, it's impossible to resist. You must try, Claude. You really must. Oh, what? Oh, really? What do you... Who's that? Uh... Oh, what the hell's going on? <clears throat> I'm so sorry, Mr. Rumpole. Hmm? The hat stand fell over. All by itself. Well, I suppose we... Uh, I must have um, bashed into it uh, by accident. Mm, what's the time? Half past uh, seven. Half past seven? Why are you here so early? Well, I could ask you the same question. Why are you both here so early? You can't ask me that. Well, as a matter of fact... We bumped into each other on the district line. But you normally travel up the northern line to Charing Cross, and then you walk. Today, today I changed at Embankment and um, joined the eastbound district line to Temple. And I uh, just happened to be on the same train. How very coincidental. Well, never mind our travel arrangements. Did you spend the night in Chambers? What if I did? The lease specifies that this building should be used for business purposes only, not for any form of domestic life. Did you sleep in your room, yes or no? That's your idea of piercing cross-examination. I pity your next client. Mind you, I pity every client who relies on you for their liberty. Just answer the question. Are you guilty or not guilty? You should know by now that I never plead guilty. Oh. Well, where are they? Rumpole! Rumpole! Please, Claude, leave him alone. There's clearly something wrong. The Porsche of our chambers was right. There was something wrong. Not only did I feel as if an axe had been embedded in my skull, my heart felt peculiar. Was it merely the arrhythmic beating of a diseased organ? Or was I experiencing a visit from the green-eyed monster? It was obvious Miss Trant had embarked on an affair with Erskine Brown. But what right did I have to pass judgment or feel any kind of emotion? Least of all jealousy. <laughs> Good evening, Mr. Rumpole. Young Portia, I take it you're the someone rather special. Is that how Claude referred to me? Your boyfriend, Claude? Is that how you refer to him? I suppose so. He's been so persistent in his wooing. <laughs> I had to give in. You must have noticed we've become rather close. Yes, yes, I have noticed. And have you noticed anything else about me? Uh, such as? I've been nauseous in your company on a number of occasions. I tried not to take it too personally. You didn't guess that I'm pregnant. 
No. No, I didn't. Was it, was it Erskine Brown? I mean, I mean, is Erskine Brown... Is he the father? Let's hope so. Good night, Mr. Rumpel. Good night, Miss Trant. As I left Chambers that evening, I faced the age-old dilemma. Should I hurry home to she who must be obeyed, and to our young son, Nicholas? Or take a moment to review the strengths and weaknesses of the case against my client, and thereby strive to become a more effective advocate? Another glass of your van most ordinaire, if you will, Jack. And one for yourself? Uh, no, I, I won't, actually. I need a clear head for the mathematics. I'm adding up all these outstanding tabs, including yours. Mr. Rumpole. Oh, you mustn't worry about that. I have a brief which should, if all goes well, bring in sufficient funds to cover the cost of my recent drinks in your establishment. I'm very glad to hear it, sir. It's a sad case. And I can't stop thinking about the poor boy involved. The son of my client, you understand, Matthew Culp, whose father, Stanley, is charged with a firearms offence. It, it's really no business of mine, sir. Ah, but I'm sure Miss Trant would like to hear all about it. Hmm? If you'll excuse me. Uh, yes, sir, the usual. Good evening, Mr. Rumpole. Ah, the Porsche of our chambers. Huh. You come here to drown your sorrows. What sorrows? I'd have thought any woman engaged to be married to Claude Erskine Brown would be able to remember the misery she's about to face. Oh. Have I gone too far? No, no, if that's what you think. You're upset. Don't be silly. Well, perhaps a drink might help. Probably best if I don't. Some wine during pregnancy is good for the baby. Yes, I believe it prevents premature labour. Even so, I think I'll abstain. In which case, why come in here? To see you, Mr. Rumpole. To ask you, am I doing the right thing? Abstaining from alcohol? Getting married to Claude. Though you just answered the question, you think I shouldn't marry Claude. What you do with Erskine Brown is... is... not something I wish to contemplate. Well, I have to contemplate it, Mr. Rumpole. In a couple of months, my tummy will be enormous. Everyone will know I'm having a baby. I think you'll find most people know already. And I'm not sure why you're asking for my opinion. You know why I'm asking. If you think Claude's not good enough for me... Claude's not good enough for anyone, least of all you. No one in their right <laughs> mind should ever marry Erskine Brown. Even if they're about to give birth to his child? Are you absolutely sure? Please, don't ask me again. Anyway, I don't have to keep it. No, 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 that's not I don't I... mean... Of course I will give birth to the baby, but I can pass him, her, on to another mother. There are agencies. Adoption agencies. Adoption? I have a career, Mr. Rumpole. And you're about to have a child, Miss Trant. I don't want to wave my career goodbye. You can always come back to it later. Oh, after all my friends and rivals have taken silk. Your friends are your rivals. And having a child won't stop you becoming a queer customer. I should probably go. You want to go home to your wife? Want? No. Feel obliged to? Yes. And Erskine Brown is coming through the door. Look. He really does love me, Mr. Rumpole. Ah. But love is blind, and lovers cannot see the pretty follies that yes. themselves commit. Yes, quite so. Claude, over here. Good night, Miss Trent. Good night, Mr. Rumpole. As Erskine Brown approached, I hurried towards the exit. It was hard enough to share chambers with this learned friend of mine... To watch him canoodle with a woman who might be carrying the fruit of my loins, not his, was far, far too much to bear.
We look before and after and pine for what is not. Our sincerest laughter with some pain is fraught. Our sweetest songs are those that tell of saddest thought. My walk from Gloucester Road tube station to number 25B Froxbury Court always felt like the perambulation undertaken by the French aristocracy as they approached the guillotine. In what mood would I find she who must be obeyed? Bad, foul, or unspeakable? Is that you, Rumble? No, Hilda, it's an escaped prisoner from Wormwood Scrubs. And if I were you, I wouldn't struggle. Good God, what on earth are you doing? Cleaning, Rumpole. Trying to make this place look presentable. But why? Because we're having someone to stay. A special guest. Not Dodo Mackintosh. No, not Dodo. Oh, thank heavens for that. But you don't have another friend, do you? I have Boxy Horn. I'm so sorry. Have you seen a doctor? Boxy Horn is a man, Rumpole. A tall, handsome man who I knew when we were young. Young and in love. <laughs> Are you blushing, Hilda? Don't be silly, Rumpole. I expect you need a G&T and I could use another glass of Pomeroy's plonk to top up my blood alcohol concentration. Do I know this Boxy? Uh, you've never met him, no, no. He was invited to our wedding, but he was abroad, in Africa. At least that's what he said, but I suspect he couldn't bring himself to watch as I gave myself to another man. Not something anyone would want to see. He was my first love, Rumpel. There was a time, I have to confess, when I thought we'd be together forever. But Daddy disapproved of Boxy. Was it the ridiculous name, or did Daddy know something you haven't yet divulged? Boxy was a free spirit. Not for him an office in the city... He refused to wear a suit and tie. Oh, how very rebellious. He is rebellious and adventurous. That's why he went to Africa to see wild animals and kill them. Hmm. Sounds a lovely chap. Here's your gin and tonic. Oh, thank you. Oh, we'll need some whiskey for Boxy. He likes his scotch. Oh. Any chance he could bring his own? Just buy a good bottle of malt, Rumpel. <sighs> With this case you're doing at the Bailey, I'm sure you can afford one. Did I tell you about my case? Mm. Last night, at some length... And you were listening. I always get the impression you're not interested in my briefs. You're wrong. So, you remember the name of my client? Crump. Stephen Crump. Culp. Stanley Culp. Accused of armed robbery. Accused of possessing firearms. With which he intended to rob a bank. Which he allegedly sold to the Irish Republican Army. Then I hope he goes to prison for an awfully long time. You do remember that I'm defending the poor fellow. Oh. Then he will go to prison for an awfully long time. Hmm. Well, actually, no, not if I have anything to do with it. He's already been separated from his 12-year-old son for months. I imagine the boy's mother is coping perfectly well without him. The boy's mother ran off with a used car salesman two years ago, leaving Stanley Culp to bring up young Matthew all by himself. Is this your plea of mitigation? I hope I won't need one, but I admire Mr Culp for forming such a bond with his son. I hope I can do the same with Nicholas. You? Why not me? <laughs> to form a bond with your son, you have to spend time with your son. I do spend time. When? Well, uh, let me think. You always come home after I've put Nicholas to bed. You never read him a bedtime story. I could read him one now. <gasps> He's been asleep for hours. I'm sorry, but I had to prepare oh. for the Bailey. By drinking in Pomeroy's. I was in conference with my learned friends. Which learned friends? Well, my pupil, for one. Hmm. 
Philomena Tramp. Her name is Philida Trant, as well you know. I gather she's expecting a baby. And without a husband, which is remarkable. But not impossible. I believe Claude Erskine Brown is responsible for this accident. Erskine Brown is engaged to be married to, Porsche, to Miss Trant. But he was neither engaged nor married when he... when, when it happened. This kind of amoral anarchy is becoming far too prevalent these days. It's 1964, Hilda, not 1864. You really ought to move with the times. You'll be telling me to take the pill next. I hardly see the point. Shame Miss Tramp wasn't using it herself. Might have saved all this heartache. What heartache? Ah, the birth of a little bastard brings nothing but unhappiness to all concerned. Miss Trant and Erskine Brown will be very happy together, and the baby, their baby, will bring them nothing but joy and laughter. Of that, I'm absolutely certain. Was I absolutely certain? As I tucked into my chop and mash that night, my main feeling was one of envy. Mm. What had Erskine Brown ever done to deserve a wife like the Portia of our chambers? And what had I done to deserve a wife like she who must? Rumpel, I'm going to bed. Yes, the dressing gown and slippers rather tipped me off as to your intentions. Are you coming too? Not yet. I have to read this so-called confession. Half a dozen witness statements and study a map of the locus in quo. There's always a reason. I'm sorry. Why we never go to bed at the same time. You always have something you'd rather be doing. This is work, Hilda. I get no joy from doing it. Do you ever get joy from me? Hmm. <clears throat> Boxy and I used to laugh all the time. Good night. If she who must was trying to make me jealous, she was failing in her mission. There was only one woman who could produce that emotion in me. And the next day I spent the entire morning with her as we reviewed the evidence for R.V. Culp. The boy was making breakfast. Yes, Miss Trant. Young Matthew Culp was cooking bacon and eggs for his father. Was his father incapable of making his own breakfast? No, I, I gather the son looked after the father and the father looked after the son. Oh. It is was a close and caring relationship. How very quaint. Rather sweet, I thought. Stanley Culp is clearly very proud of his son. I saw him yesterday in Brixton, Nick. The son? Oh, the father. He misses Matthew. Matthew's banged up in some council care home with God knows who. Oh. I have to be there when he gets home from school, Mr Rumpole. Please help me, he said. I hardly saw my father when I was young. Oh, poor you. Oh, I'm not complaining. Dreadful man. Beastly to mummy. Oh. My father was a vicar. Lost his faith in Croydon. If you've ever been to Croydon, it's understandable. Did he ever hug you? Tell you he loved you? <laughs> Don't be absurd. I think my father tried to tell me once. I was about to leave home for Oxford. He took me aside, started mumbling. What did he mumble? Something about the train times. I could tell he wanted to say more, but I chose not to help him. He ended up by patting me on the head. Better than nothing, I suppose. I hug Nicholas all the time. Well, not all the time, but most mornings, huh. if I see him before I leave. I hope I'll be a good mother. How does one know if one will be or not? One finds out as one goes along. Do you think 
Claude will. We really ought to get back to the case. <clears throat> yes. Young Matthew had just finished frying the eggs and bacon. His father was downstairs in the shop, his antiques emporium, conducting some early morning business with a customer. Mm -hmm. Matthew popped some bread under the grill, then heard a car door slam. He looked out of the kitchen window. Ah, now is this where we have the unmarked police car? I have the witness statement from Detective Inspector Blake. Who was driving the car, containing three passengers, according to Matthew. But only two passengers, according to the Detective Inspector, both of them also police officers from Special Branch. Matthew saw a man wearing gold-rimmed sunglasses getting out of the car and walking away from the shop. But Detective Inspector Blake insists no such man was in the vicinity. So Matthew then went to the top of the stairs and called down to his father, breakfast ready. Mr Culp was talking to a fat man with ginger hair... Yes. ...who was holding a briefcase. And that's when the three police officers burst into the shop. The fat man with ginger hair made a run for it, got outside, but no further because he was shot in the back by Detective Inspector Blake. Who said the man was armed and dangerous. Hmm. You think he wasn't? He was a member of the Irish Republican Army and he supposedly had a pistol, but he was trying to draw it just before he was shot. As claimed by the police officers. Is anyone's guess. Well, thank heavens young Matthew didn't see the body or the blood on the pavement. He did, however, see his father being led away in handcuffs and two open crates in the shop stuffed full of rifles and pistols, allegedly reserved for the IRA. Hmm. What were the IRA going to do with so many guns, Mr Rumpole? I imagine they'd planned to shoot people. Hmm. A lot of people. The innocence of my young pupil made me feel cynical and old, but I was still in my thirties. I had so much to look forward to. So many reasons to feel joyful. Is that you, Rumpel? Oh. No, it's the Lord High Chancellor of England. Just dropped in to read the meter. Shut up, Rumpel. Don't be so silly. Hmm? It's Boxy. What's Boxy? He's here. Boxy Horn. I told you he was coming to stay. Oh, God. Is that today? Come and meet him. Aha! You must be Horace. Uh, must I? Back from the treadmill. No, back from chambers. I see you have a drink. You won't mind if I join you? This cunning-looking cove was sitting in my chair, nursing a glass of my Chateau Fleet Street, and smiling in a lopsided manner. He wore a travel-stained tropical jacket and scuffed suede shoes, which had seen better days. Are you home from chambers same time every evening? I bet you can certainly watch by this fella, can't you, Hilda? <laughs> well, not exactly. <laughs> Your good lady wife gave me some of this plonk, Horace. Plonk. We'd have been glad of this back on the farm in Kenya. You might have run a couple of tractors on it. <laughs> <laughs> Give Boxy a whiskey, Rumpel. Lots of ice and water. No, strong as you like. Uh, Boxy couldn't get into the Travellers Club. Blackballed? Full up. Hilda was good enough to say I might camp here for a couple of weeks. A couple of... <clears throat> Here's your whiskey. Oh. Mm. Thanks, Horace, but maybe don't drown the next one. Huh? <laughs> uh, Boxy's been all around the world, Rumpel. I could never have survived a nine-to-five routine like yours. I've always been a rover. All my worldly goods packed into one brass-bound box. Which is why we call him... Boxy! Tropical kit! Mosquito net! <laughs> Photographs, including one of Hilda looking young and alluring. Mind you, that was taken some time ago. But many's the night I've sat alone, listening to the exotic sounds of Africa, gazing at that photograph. 
Oh, oh. <laughs> you have been looking after Hilda, haven't you, Horace? Looking after her? No. Hilda's the one in charge here. I always thought she needed looking after. <laughs> I suppose I had itchy feet and couldn't resist the call of Kenya. Mind if I top myself up? If there's anything left in the bottle. What were you doing in Kenya? Coffee. No, thanks. I'll stick to wine. I mean, I was growing coffee beans in Kenya. Uh, starting work at what time in the morning? Well, uh, after my boy had made me breakfast, I'd ride round the plantation and... That's uh, nine o'clock? Uh, about then, I suppose. Uh, and knocking off? Around sundown. Uh, chair on the veranda, shout for a whiskey. About five o'clock? Yes. Why do you ask? Well, I could never have survived a nine-to-five routine like yours. What? Same again. Don't mind if I do. Ever been tiger shooting, Horace? Along the Gloucester Road? No, not recently. The neighbours tend to complain. Best sport in the world. Tie an old goat to a tree and lie doggo. Your loader says, Buana, tiger coming. There she is. Eyes glittering through the undergrowth. She starts to eat the goat. And, aiming just above the shoulder, bang! Oh. What do you think of that, Horace? I think it's bloody bad luck on the goat. <laughs> Having finished all the whiskey and seen off my remaining bottles of Chateau Fleet Street, Boxy then consumed a piece of meat cremated by Hilda, which could well have been goat or horse after that. The one benefit of having the dreadful man to stay was that she who must was clearly besotted and hung on his every word, of which there were many. I could, therefore, abstain from conversation and concentrate on trying to chew my own plateful of charred morsels. I went to bed early, leaving Boxy and Hilda to reminisce on their own. Up with the lark, I was in my favourite cafe by 7.30, tucking into a fried slice and some rashers of bacon. Good morning, Mr. Rumpole. Ah, Portia. Good morning. Will you join me for a hearty breakfast? Perhaps just a coffee. Hmm. You're eating for two, don't forget. As if I could. This is rather early for you, isn't it? I have to get out of the flat. There's a man staying there. Boxy Horn. An old flame of Hilda's. An old flame? Isn't that rather... awkward? I'm hoping the fire will be rekindled. If Boxy could sweep Hilda off her feet and whisk her back to Kenya, I'd be over the moon. Oh, you don't mean that. Oh, yes, I do. What about Nicholas? Hmm. Would he go with them? I hadn't thought about Nicholas. You'd never be able to say goodbye to your own son, would you? I'd certainly miss the little chap. Oh. oh let's not think about that. I'm sure she who must is only flirting, sadly, but if Boxy had seized the chance to woo her when she was young, free and single... But you often think, what if? All the time... Don't you? Oh, yes, Mr. Rumpole. What if I'd studied medicine rather than law? Become a doctor rather than a barrister? But do you think we reach a stage when it's impossible to change? Yes, I fear I'm trapped with this job, this wife, this child. We always have a choice. We can take a different road to the one we'd planned, or the one planned for us, by circumstances beyond our control. Perhaps you can change jobs, but it's far too late for No, me. no, no, Mr... Come now, Portia, and let's look again at the statements taken from Mr. Stanley Cup. Hmm? Do you have it? 
Yes, I've made a note of all the points we need to clarify before the trial begins. His reason to store the packing cases full of guns is number one, is it not? Mr. Culp says he rented out space at the back of his shop to anyone willing to pay. Usually it was furniture, but on this occasion he agreed to look after two packing cases. Belonging to... Um... A man who called himself Mr. Banks and claimed to be working for the International League of Medical Welfare. Hmm. Mr. Banks apparently told Mr. Culp the packing cases contained sticking plasters and bandages which were on their way to Ceylon. Well, Culp must have noticed the cases were rather heavy for plasters and bandages. Will you ask him in court why he didn't challenge Mr. Banks about that? Certainly not. That's a question for the prosecution. Oh, yes along with whether Mr. Culp asked for proof of Mr. Banks's identity. Quite so. I shall merely ask about the description of the mysterious Mr. Banks given by Mr. Culp to the police. Hmm. A man of average agent height, wearing gold-rimmed sunglasses. That could be a vital point, Miss Trapp. Thank you. Make a note. Oh, I wish I could do more than make notes. When you've ceased to be my pupil, you'll get your chance, and I'm sure you'll rise quickly to the very top of our profession. Even with a baby in tow? Even with a baby. How do we get from Mr. Banks delivering packing cases to a man being shot by the police? Oh, um... Mr. Banks rang Mr. Culp to warn him a colleague would be calling round in the morning to collect the cases and hand over a final payment. That man... Who we now know was a member of the IRA, name of Sean O'Callaghan. ...was killed by the special branch officers as he tried to run away. So he was unable to shed any light on the whereabouts or true identity of the enigmatic Mr. Banks. Presumably Mr. Banks was the man seen by young Matthew Culp when he was making breakfast for his father. The gold-rimmed sunglasses are too much of a coincidence. So Mr. Banks was taken to the shop by the special branch officers in their car. I think so. Will you call Matthew as a witness? Not unless I have to. The poor boy has suffered enough, hmm. and he continues to suffer without being subject to cross-examination. Come, Portia. We should talk to Stanley Culp before the trial begins. I should try to reassure him that his son's quite happy. Is he quite happy? Without his father? Of course not. And so we hurried over to the old bailey where I spoke to my client in his subterranean cell, then took my place in court number three. All rise. All those with any business... To watch the jury being sworn in. I swear by almighty God that I will faithfully try the defendant and give a... Before eventually getting the chance to cross-examine one of the officers of Special Branch. Superintendent Rodney... Have you ever heard of the International League of Medical Welfare? Not until your client told us they sent him those packing cases. And did you know of a Mr. Banks who apparently runs that philanthropic organisation? Not until your client told us his story. A story you believed? If I had believed it, we wouldn't be here today, Mr. Rumpel. Hmm. Uh, did my client, Mr. Culp, give you a description of Mr. Banks? The man who asked him to store the packing cases? Yes, if I may refer to my notebook... Your client said he was a man of average height, wearing gold-rimmed sunglasses. Well, you know perfectly well who that was, don't you? I have absolutely no idea. Really? And have this special branch made any effort to find this elusive Banks? Have you sought him here? Have you sought him there? We have been unable to trace Mr Banks or the International League of Medical Welfare. I see. Now, on the 4th of May, you arrived outside my client's shop at breakfast time. 
Who was in the car with you? Detective Inspector Blake and Detective Sergeant Taylor. And who told you that a transaction in firearms was likely to take place in Mr. Culp's shop that morning? I can't give you the name of our informant. Well, can you at least tell the court if your informant was in the car? I'm sorry, but any information about the informant might place that person in danger. Hmm. Then let me just ask you this. Did a man wearing gold-rimmed sunglasses get out of your car in front of the shop and walk away before the arrest of my client? I'm not prepared to answer. Was that man Mr. Banks? I've already told you we don't know any Mr. Banks. But you do know whoever it was, an officer of the special branch, perhaps, stored the packing cases in Mr. Culp's shop, told Mr. Culp they were medical supplies, and arranged for Sean O'Callaghan, who wanted to buy guns for the IRA, to walk into your trap. All I can tell you, Mr. Rumpole, is that the cases of rifles and pistols were in the shop when Sean O'Callaghan called to collect them. Had Sean O'Callaghan met Mr. Banks before that morning? I can't say. And the jury will never know, because Sean O'Callaghan has been silenced forever. Detective Inspector Blake saw him in the act of pulling out a weapon. D.I. Blake fired in self-defence. No doubt he did, but it leaves us, does it not, a little short of evidence. It leaves you a little short, Mr. Rumpole. The copper had me banged to rights. I was indeed almost entirely bereft of evidence. But should I put a 12-year-old boy in the witness box? If young Matthew is willing and able... Willing, certainly. Able? I don't know. The experience could break him. I think you have to allow him to help his father. If you don't, Matthew might never forgive himself. Let me sleep on it. Oh, you're not going home. Oh, God, no. Not with Boxy Horn still there. So, shall we have another drink? It's a very good idea. Jack... Jack! Just one minute, Mr. Rumpole. Pomeroy is going to help you. Good evening, Mr. Erskinebrow. I imagine he's after you. Mr. Trant, oh, I'm not sure, sir. Let me ask my colleagues. I don't think I'm here. Give me that, Jack. <clears throat> uh, good day, mate. If you're looking for Phyllida Trent, you're out of luck. Because I ain't seen any Sheilas. I know she's not called Sheila. I'm just saying... Me? I'm in charge of washing the glasses, Cobber. Bye. He, um, he sounded rather cross. Oh, I promised I'd be back an hour ago. Oh? Sometimes a nutritious supper followed by two hours of Wagner isn't what one really wants. What does one really want? Uh, to start with, another glass of Chateau Thames Embankment. I forget if we stopped after the next bottle. Perhaps we had one more for the road. Suffice to say, I was ready for bed when I eventually got home that night. But before turning in, I wanted to say good night to my son. Nicholas, are you asleep? Oh, ah, it's, um, sorry, it's it's me. It's it's Daddy. You don't have to wake up. It's fine. Just wanted to tell you something. A few things, actually. One, I love you. There, said it. <laughs> I'm sorry I don't spend more time with you, but I will. I think we should read Swallows and Amazons together, when you can read. I can't always get home before you're asleep. I have to see people in the evenings, clients, colleagues, and so forth. If I don't spend time with the grown-ups, I might not get any work. And then what would we do for money? How could I afford to feed you? How could I buy a gin and tonic for mummy? You do understand how difficult it is for me, don't you? Rumpel! 
What on earth are you doing? Hilda, shh, hush. Switch the light off. You'll wake the boy. The boy's not here. Look. What? Oh. Just a pillow. I thought... Nicholas was having a nightmare. I put him to sleep in our bed. You can stay in here tonight. I'll go to the spare room. And sleep with Boxy. Oh, God. Boxy. Forgot about bloody Boxy. He'd never come home drunk. Well, perhaps you should have married Boxy, then. Perhaps I should. Not too late to make changes to our lives, is it, Hilda? Not too late to start again. Oh. There's Nicholas. He needs me. Good night, Rumpel. <sighs> Good night. Sweet she, you must be obeyed. Flights of angels... Sing thee to thy rest. <sighs> I woke with a start and a headache and hurried out of the flat before Boxy made an appearance. I admit I wasn't at the top of my game when questioning young Matthew Culp, as he stood on tiptoes in the witness-box of court number three. Can you remember what this Mr. Banks looked like when you first saw the man? He had gold-rimmed glasses. The members of the jury could all see how much the little boy wanted his father to be released from custody. Did you ever see him again? When the policeman arrived, Mr. Banks got out of the police car. And that was the problem. Prosecuting counsel pointed out that Matthew's evidence was worthless. Matthew would have said absolutely anything to help his beloved father. Now, are you sure the man you saw getting out of the car was the same man you'd seen before? The man who called himself Mr. Banks? I think it was Mr. Banks. Have I said the right thing, Daddy? But surely they could see he was telling the truth. They could see he was desperate, that's all. Poor little boy. Did you hear what he said as he left the court? Did I let you down, Daddy? Heartbreaking. Six years of prison visits. A couple of hours with his father every weekend in some godforsaken nick. That's heartbreaking. Ah, Mr. Culp. I... I'm so very, very sorry. There was little I could say to my client other than to apologise profusely. But for what? It wasn't my fault the special branch officers hid vital information behind the cloak of national security. Nor could I be blamed for a sentence that punished the son as much as the father. And yet I still felt guilty. I attempted to drown my sorrows that night with my naive young pupil. I still can't believe the police officers were so unhelpful. I'm afraid you'll get used to it. I thought they were on our side. Our side? Those of us seeking justice. Those of us fighting for the rights of the innocent. Oh, dear Miss Tramp, your wig really is whiter than white. The sooner you fight a case on your own, the sooner you'll get it dirty. Do they often perjure themselves? The police? If they think they can get away with it, yes. And the so-called confessions of defendants, do they sometimes make them up? Frequently. Oh. It's been going on for years and will, I fear, continue into the foreseeable future. So there are people in prison who really shouldn't be there? Lots of people. 
And, of course, some have been hanged who should still be alive. Well, I hope something can be done to stop all this malpractice. <laughs> I do love your innocence, Portia. Oh, is that all you love about me? I'm not sure. I feel... I feel confused. I was confused. But I think I know what I want now. Oh? I'm going to keep this baby. There's no question of adoption. And I'm definitely going to marry Claude. That's good. Good I'm keeping the baby or good I'm getting married. I think I'll call it a night. Heading back home to the dear little wife. Might be in time to read my son a story. Like a proper father, Mr. Rumpole. I'm trying my best, Miss Trent. <sighs> trying my best. But would my best ever be good enough for she who must be obeyed? No, it's... Yes, Hilda, I'm afraid it's me. Good evening. Can I pour you a gin and tonic? I already have one. And does Boxy have his usual half pint of scotch? Boxy's gone. What? I'm afraid we had a bit of a set, too. <sighs> Hilda, are you all right? You look peculiar. I, I'm really quite upset. He asked for... demanded money. One hundred guineas. You didn't. <laughs> With our overdraft? Of course not. What did you want the money for? Intends to buy a farm in Dorset. Cows or... or sheep or something. Mm. What about Africa? He's had enough. Going to settle down in Blighty. You, uh... You do realise his stories about Kenya were exactly that. Just Stories? Stories. There aren't any tigers in Kenya. I doubt he's ever been to Africa. But... But I thought he was going to take me there. Oh. Would you have gone with Boxy? Better than being trapped here. With you. Trapped? Well, don't you ever feel it? Of course I do. But I thought it was only me. I saw a way to escape all this... Misery. You can't be miserable. <laughs> I put on a brave face. I think we both do. Oh, God. Another nightmare. Look, you stay here. Have another drink. Mm, hardly a solution. Oh, it helps. Mm. I'll read Nicholas's story. Oh, what's this, Rumpel? You're trying to play the good father at last? To you, your father should be as a god. One that composed your beauties, yea, and one to whom you are but as a form in wax. Uncle, go. Sorry, sorry. Coming, Nicholas. Daddy's coming. By him imprinted, and within his power, to leave the figure or disfigure it. Now, what's the matter? should be asleep, young man. Hmm? Shall I tell you a story? I was going to read from one of my favourite books, but I don't have it with me. Perhaps tomorrow. Oh, Daddy! Well, it's, it's a, a fascinating tale about some extraordinary children. John, Susan, Roger, and a little girl called Titty. <laughs> well, yes, I, I suppose it is quite a funny name. In 
Rumpole and the Porsche of Our Chambers by John Mortimer, Horace Rumpole was Benedict Cumberbatch, Hilda Rumpole, Jasmine Hyde, Phyllida Trant, Kathy Sarah, Boxy Horn, Stephen Critchlow, and Matthew Culp was Samuel Reader. Other parts were played by members of the company. Rumpole and the Porsche of Our Chambers was adapted by Richard Stoneman, directed by Marilyn Imrie, and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4.